and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Tuesday this week on November 26 at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So a short week, but still plenty of health news. I want to start with open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act. Lots of people will likely use this long holiday weekend to sign up. Remember, open enrollment in most states ends December 15th. And while there haven't been as many changes for this year as there has been in years past, and obviously a considerably less chaos, there have been some changes. So who can tell us sort of how things are going roughly? I guess we're halfway through. Obamacare marketplaces. Um, yeah, so it looks like from the most recent numbers, enrollment down is a little bit, although it's hard. You have to sort of caveat that because the enrollment, enrollment is down a little bit. Is Right. Enrollment's <laughs> a little bit down. Um, but we're not really going to have a full picture until after it ends on December 15th because, of, the, of course, the numbers we're seeing don't include all of the states and the periods don't totally line up with like last year. So um, but I think I think it's it's safe to say I think most people are expecting to see a small reduction in enrollment, which if that's the case is sort of interesting because this is the first year where we've seen a substantial reduction in premiums. Um, although we should note that doesn't mean that the plans are in all aspects cheaper because the deductibles are still going up. Um, we're still in a situation where if you're not subsidized, they're largely unaffordable for folks. Um, and if they are subsidized, weirdly enough, because of the way the premiums get calculated, it might be more expensive for some people, even though premiums are generally a little bit down. Right. Yeah. Um, so so, so let's see. How much more time do we have left in the enrollment? I think two, two three weeks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but I, I think... One thing I'd like to note about the premium reductions is this is something that the administration has tried really hard to take credit for. Um, but I think you can make an argument that we probably would have seen this type of stabilization happen already because when you talk to the health insurers, they say they really have hit that sweet spot where they had those massive double-digit premium increases for a few years. And so we have premiums now set at this pretty high level, and so that's why they're sort of able to do do some reductions. Um, but then on the flip side, you know, Democrats have spent the last, you know, year, year and a half yelling about how they thought premiums were going to spike because the administration was, you know, setting up these leaner plans that would presumably attract healthier people. And there can be some problems with those plans, as we'll talk about later. But I think it's notable that all of, all of that gloom and doom that Democrats had predicted has entirely transpired in and, the marketplace. And no, this is the first year where I think people no, – I mean, there was no – the people who signed up last year, there would be no mandate to sign up. But this year, we've had a year where there's no mandate. So there's no requirement. And still, it's only dipping a little bit instead of a lot. And that doesn't include all of the people who will get automatically re-enrolled at the end. Which sort of goes to, like, the point I've always made, which is people – 
want health insurance for, with or without a mandate. I mean, you mm-hmm. ask any Republican who is trying to repeal the ACA and they still would say they want their kids to have health insurance. So, you know, if it's affordable, I think it's a product people want to buy. Yeah, I think it comes down to that, especially if if you feel like it's something that you can afford and not something that will cost, you know, more than your mortgage, then you're more likely to sign up. I mean, some folks are getting health insurance for zero premiums, um, zero dollars in premiums a month. And so it's really that kind of carrot versus the stick argument. One state to really watch, I think this open enrollment is going to be California because they have expanded subsidies to more people. And it'll be interesting to see how many more people enroll in the state. And they have a much longer open enrollment. They, they that's one of the states that does not end. They December pull out 15th. all the stuff. They it, have aggressive outreach, longer open enrollment, subsidies. $100 million mm-hmm. in um, marketing and advertising the Affordable Care Act. And a really cute dog belongs to them. <laughs> I miss the dog. <laughs> we have to look we met the later. dog when we were out there last year. Well, one of the many different things this year is easier availability of different types of plants. Paige, you were alluding to more plants that don't carry all the consumer protections that the official Affordable Care Act plans do. And while there's less official Affordable Care Act marketing and outreach, Alice, as you were just mentioning, there seems to be more and more telemarketing of particularly short-term plans that don't cover everything. Every day I see another story about somebody who bought what they thought was an Affordable Care Act plan and then they got sick and went to get care and discovered that for one reason or another it wouldn't pay. Um, What do people really need to kind of watch out for here if you're trying to buy insurance? (laughs) Well, it's tough because there are the outright scams, which are, you know, these bad actors contacting people um, and and pitching them on a, a health care plan that's extremely skimpy, extremely high deductible. You know, they'll find if they actually need a health service, it barely covers anything. All of us have probably gotten those robo calls mm-hmm. that spiked, I think, last month. I know I got a few of them. Right. I got a few. But, but the really scary thing is that healthcare.gov itself is directing people to third-party broker sites that are marketing some of these plans. And so people may not even realize they've left the realm of healthcare.gov in which only comprehensive plans are sold and are on a site where uh, the plan they're buying, even though it might look very attractive because the premiums are very low, won't actually be there for them when they need it. I think there is, it is important to draw a distinction between the short-term limited duration plans um, and the association health plans because I think there's probably more danger for people in these short-term plans which don't have to cover the essential health benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, what, can, and can not pay based on pre-existing conditions. Right, yes. Other, other things that the Affordable Care Act, in theory, got rid of. Right, it doesn't adhere to a lot of those rules. Now, the association health plans also don't necessarily have to adhere to, like, the essential health benefits, but they're basically governed under the same rules that govern large employer health plans. And so the idea with the association plans is that chambers of commerce can try to offer these plans for members or other associations. And I know in my reporting, at least, I've talked to a lot of these associations, and so far, as far as, far as I've seen... They all do cover the essential health benefits. They don't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. There are lawsuits against both of those rules, the short-term plans and the AHPs. So we'll see how that turns out. But if I were warning consumers, I think I'd focus more on the short-term plans versus the association plans. Right, because, um, I mean, not only can they be hard to distinguish for consumers um, because of where they're finding them online, they're hard to distinguish because even though they're called short-term plans, the Trump administration has allowed them to be up to a year, so the length of a regular plan. And so it, it can be very hard to sort of see the difference and read, read the fine print for folks. Yeah, it's easy to see a, a sh- a just a low premium and, and say, well, that's that would be great for me. Yeah, this is just really 
you know, signifies the impact that the um, that has has occurred because Congress has not come to an agreement on how to stabilize the Affordable Care Act. And because of that, you have so many people who still find health insurance really unaffordable under the Affordable Care Act. And so they're turning to these other options, which if you get really sick or if you have a pre-existing condition, can really land you in a, you know, devastating circumstance financially. So, um, you know, we're just saying sort of all of that come to bear because Congress couldn't come to an agreement about how to stabilize the Affordable Care Act. No. Be, be careful out there. Um, let us turn the channel to vaping, and I mean that kind of literally. President Trump hosted an event at the White House Friday that honestly looked like a staged reality show. He had representatives of pro-vaping and anti-vaping groups there at the same time, both trying to convince him to go their way, even though he had already announced his support for banning vaping flavors back in, what, September? So do we have any idea where the administration is going to land on this? Oh, that's the million dollar question. I think I email my colleague Lori McGinley like every day saying, what have you heard on this? And she's like, I don't know. Um, it, it seems pretty clear at this point that if they do go forward with some kind of a ban, it's going to include some pretty significant carve outs, which are going to make health advocates pretty unhappy. So I, I see two main things here. So one is exempting, exempting these independent vape shops, which have, have really, you know, protested at this ban saying they're going to go out of business, et cetera. And then the other question has been around the mint and menthol flavors of the of the e-cigarettes and um, the, the fact that kids do also choose these flavors as well as other flavors. Yes, there was there was this great moment at this little event where, you know, they were saying, well, the kids really like the, you know, painted unicorn flavors and some of the adults, the adults like it too. But the, right, but the argument to sort of allow, continue allowing the menthol vapes is that adults that are trying to transition from using menthol cigarettes, this could potentially be helpful for them, which goes to sort of that larger argument of what is the utility of of e-cigarettes for adults trying to stop smoking versus getting kids hooked on them. You know, and, and Which is why we're here in the vaping debate in the first place. Exactly. So I could see those being like two carve outs. But I would say I, I'm not really expecting to see this finalized for a while, just considering that the Senate is trying to confirm President Trump's pick to lead the Food and Drug Administration. And they're trying to get that done next month. Um, but Democrats and then some Republicans have signaled that they're not so excited about Trump's move on vaping and they might put put up a fuss about that during the confirmation process. That's obviously something the administration wouldn't love. So they may just kind of sit on their hands for a little while until that moves further along. I'm not sure. It's just a pattern playing out that we've seen in with this president multiple times where he announces a big, bold step. Uh, and then once the sort of reviews trickle in, uh, backs away from it. Um, and so we've just seen this a bunch. And so, you know, at first coming out and saying, you know, we need to uh, temporarily ban all flavors until the FDA can, you know, uh, assess the, the public health risks. And that was moving forward and apparently ready to go as a rule. And now we're back kind of at square one where they're debating even the facts of what's going on. Do adults use flavors? Um, You know, will banning certain products drive people into the black market, which was another point that came up at this cage match televised 
shout fest last week. Um, and so if we're if we're back at debating like the basic facts of the crisis, that's not promising for, um, you know, a, a clear action coming out soon. But there have also been some developments. I mean, Juul st- stopped selling some of its flavored products. And most if of you its look flavored at, products. Most of them, yes. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at, and the ones that are particularly enticing to teens, and if you look at the data and around... their marketing and... Correct. Yeah. So it, they kind of got more in line. So even though the administration hasn't moved forward, you know, mm-hmm. they did make a lot of changes. And if you look at the data around teen use, you know, the kids think that these devices in particular are really cool. They like the flavors. Um you know, at the same time, there is still this mysterious illness outbreak. They think they're coming down to figuring out what the cause is. It appears to be mostly linked to THC devices and probably on the black market. And so um, whatever they ultimately decide can really impact not just teen use, but mm-hmm. this, you know, life-threatening illness that is affecting people. But that's another, like, kind of weird point about it, which is, like, I, I think in a way, I mean, regardless of where you stand on whether vape should be allowed or not, the administration used these lung illnesses as sort of the impetus for, like, mm-hmm. saying, oh, we got to stop vaping, et cetera. And now it actually turns out that it wasn't the vaping itself necessarily. It was people that are buying these products on the black market that have the THC oil, which has this vitamin E acetate, which is added to sort of dilute the really expensive THC oil so that it's cheaper to make. Um, and so it's just it's just kind of weird that what gave rise to mm-hmm. all of this was actually something that's a little bit disconnected from the question of whether or not people should right they completely conflated these two like separate crises you know i mean there's there's the problem of this mysterious illness that's killing people and sickening people around the country but that is different than the problem of getting an entire new generation hooked on nicotine who otherwise would not have largely turned to traditional cigarettes but are now hooked on these vapes Meanwhile, since the president seems to be, shall we say, unpredictable on this issue, Congress seems to be pushing ahead. The House Energy and Commerce Committee has approved a wide-ranging anti-tobacco bill. Um, What would it do and how would it compare to what's going on in the Senate, which approved its own sort of anti-vaping, raise the tobacco age to 21 bill uh, several months ago that we haven't seen on the Senate floor yet? It's interesting. The raising the age to 21 seems to be the the common ground between the House, Senate, and White House right now. And the tobacco industry. And the tobacco industry. And so, you know, I think maybe if anything emerges out of it, it will be that. Now, you know, then the question is, how will it be enforced and how how strictly um, and will this do anything to prevent um, teens from getting a hold of it? Because they were there was been some very good reporting recently on the rise of Juul and um, you know they the company was noticing that these like big bulk orders were being bought which indicated that they were being you know resold and distributed to underage folks um, and so how would that be prevented etc so there's so do we think Congress is going to actually I mean I, I, in, in 30 seconds we're going to talk about other things that Congress hasn't done but I mean where is sort of this anti-tobacco bill on the on Congress's to-do list. Obviously, they've got like one more month this year and then next year. Yeah, I can't say I have a good read on that. I know it's something I guess McConnell has said he supports the 21 mm-hmm. ban, mm-hmm. but I don't know. There are a lot of other things on their agenda. And really, when they come back from Thanksgiving, they only have, I think, two or three weeks, three weeks maybe. And then, of course, they have to do the spending bill in that time. And then... And of course, the Senate hasn't really done any legislation since, I think, since they came back from the summer break. Just judges. Just judges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, every 
every day. Look at the Senate schedule. It's like, oh, three more judges. Yep. Um, All right. Well, speaking of stuff that has not made it to the Senate floor yet, or even the House floor for that matter, uh, remember way back in the early months of this year when everybody was predicting that Congress was going to fix the surprise medical bill problem and do something about the price of prescription drugs? Um, That has not yet happened. It is Thanksgiving. Uh, Can we expect to see either one of these things anytime soon? Kimberly, you're sort Uh, of shaking your head. you know, you have the House moving forward on the Pelosi legislation, the drug which would bill. allow, yes, on the drug bill specifically, which would allow up to 250 um, expensive drugs to be um, negotiated by the government. Um, that's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. It doesn't have the support of the president. Um, but I could see them bringing it to the floor as kind of a messaging ahead of 2020 Mm -hmm. to say that they are committed to, you know, allowing the government to negotiate drug prices. And they've really sort of dared the president to support it because, if you recall, he had said when he was running for office that he wanted to see Medicare negotiate. And obviously he's since backed away from that. Um, He has said that he supports the Senate Finance Committee legislation, which would uh, cap um, drugs uh, prices if they rise above inflation and penalize um, companies who who do that, um, but it's not clear that they have the consensus over in the Senate about that bill. Republicans have issues with the cap, and um, Senate the Senate Majority Leader hasn't pledged to bring it to the floor. So I'm not I'm not sure that we'll that we'll see anything signed on on drug prices specifically. But I am sure that it's something that is going to be a big messaging um, into heading into tw- the 2020 election. Well, it isn't at the moment. So we'll, we'll no, see. No, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Right I now think it's if all they... Medicare for all, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think this is so, it's so funny because I, I feel like, I don't know, sort of dumb. Like I've written so many pieces, I feel like this fall, you know, because like there were, there were all these conversations that we kept hearing about between Pelosi's office and the White House mm-hmm. and this and and when Pelosi introduced her bill the White House didn't immediately come out and condemn it which was very interesting because a normal Republican administration would have mm-hmm. and it didn't it kind of held its fire and so everybody was kind of holding their breath like maybe there's going to be some deal that includes between the White House and Pelosi that includes negotiation but in the last few weeks you've really seen the president and also his head of domestic policy council, Joe Grogan, come out and say, we really don't like the Pelosi bill. We're not going to go along with it. So that, to me, signals sort of this breakdown in talks between the two. So are they going to do anything this year on drug prices? The most likely thing I could see is that they would add some more not non-controversial elements to a year-end spending bill. One example might be the CREATES Act, which is a bill that would prevent branded drug makers from sort of gaming the system by banning generic makers from getting samples of their medications to develop generic drugs. So pieces like that, but it is hard to imagine at this moment in time some kind of big deal. I think I think w- one factor is um, whether something can get through that will save the government money because that's an incentive for them to tack it on to a, a spending bill or, or another bill that costs money that they want to fund. And so some of these more narrow drug bills would give them that at least. Yeah. And I think if anything is going to be tacked on to the spending bill, it would be the surprise billing. Mm. Um but there, it's still <laughs> yeah, that, a question. That, that's not but, going anywhere either. But there's still a question over to arbitrate or not mm-hmm. to arbitrate, right? Um, and so that's still the ongoing debate. But it is, I mean, 
earlier this year, we kind of all thought that that would be the one health care measure that, you know, Congress could really come I together didn't. on. Oh, you did. <laughs> For the record, I did not. <laughs> well, I, write, I wrote one of the first stories that said, yeah, this might be harder than it, it looks. It to be skeptical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. Such a good example of how industry can really topple even the best. Yep. Oh, my. Yeah. It's. I mean, because at the beginning, like everybody, <laughs> the, the idea was to do benchmarking this was the what the white house supported mm-hmm. and this is what the insurers supported and this is what the the, the deficit hawk supported basically right. say this is this is the you know the average amount paid that's what we're going to pay if you're mm-hmm. out of network and as the cbo has actually said that doing a benchmarking approach would save the government money um and has said that doing the arbitration approach would actually cost money because if you look at there's been a recent study from new york state which looked at the arbitration there and it found that pr- i think prices paid ended up that were arbitrated were like 80% above other prices for the same mm-hmm. services. So well, if you think about it, I mean, that's how approach. arbitration works. Basically, you put in, you basically, your your bid is as much as you think you can get as yep. opposed to what was actually paid. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be a, a, a serious actuarial expert to figure out that if you have arbitration, you're going to get paid more than if you have some kind of a benchmark. And the I, doctors, groups, and hospitals know this, which is precisely why they have been mobilized. Well, yeah, they have I, been spending millions of dollars on ads. <laughs> during the Democratic debate last week um, in D.C., I don't know if back it was national. Back. There were back-to-back ads, yep. but, you know, arbitration is best, no benchmarking is best. And both painted in these, this is what will fix the problem for the patient. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just goes to show when you look at some of the bigger overhauls that have been proposed um, by people who are running for president or by people who are, you know, in Congress that, you know, how hard it'll be to um, to even pass something like a public option, which would limit how much, you know, doctors and hospitals get paid or Medicare for all. Um, it just I mean, it just shows that something that looks so small, um, you know, is, is might might not even make it through. Right. If it if it ever involves pay, payments to industry, I mean, even on this issue where it's like everybody agrees the consumer should be held harmless and patients shouldn't have to pay more, that it's the question of do the insurers pony up or do the providers pony up and nobody wants to. So that's where we're at with all of that. Welcome to the wonderful world of, of healthcare <laughs> politics. Uh, speaking of difficult politics, let's talk about abortion. Um, first, the Center for Reproductive Rights is out with its latest version of a document they call What If Roe Fell? It's a look at the state of abortion laws in each of the states. Since if Roe v. Wade actually was struck down, that's what would happen. Each state would be able to decide if abortion should be legal or illegal or somewhere in between. As of 2019, it appears that while abortion would remain legal in 21 states, it would likely become illegal in 24 states and three territories, mostly in the central and southern U.S. What would that mean in practice? There's already a lot of states where you almost can't get an abortion now. Yeah, because there are so many regulations, waiting periods, ultrasounds, um, you know, just counseling, cost. cost, Yeah, And some states are down to one provider. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So trying to get across the state, I mean... What, you know, what we would probably see is, uh, you know, more people ordering the abortion pill online and, um, you know, doing the abortions themselves at home um, or traveling to other states. I mean, I'm cur- I'm curious to see whether organizations like Planned Parenthood will start to, you know, provide some of that transport so that people can access abortions in other states. But um, so we'll probably see, you know, both of those uh because it's you know it's not necessarily going to lower the number of abortions. It's just going to um, cause people to seek them out in other ways. It, it's interesting, though. I mean, the the map shows where we are now, but there are active efforts in a lot of states 
in anticipation of the Supreme Court potentially doing this to change the state law in both directions, either um, further criminalizing abortion or making it more accessible and putting something into state law that would remain in place if Roe versus Wade went away. Um, and even beyond that, um, I mean, we're seeing all these because uh, of the uh, recent um, Democratic uh, state uh, House victories in Virginia. Um, they there are all these bills in place to uh, loosen regulations and make abortion even more accessible in in the state. And so I think that um, that map will evolve in the coming year. <laughs> so in the meantime, the New York Times did this very provocative story about a survey it did of the Democratic presidential candidates. It seems that in two decades, the party's standard bearers have moved from safe, legal, and rare, as Bill Clinton famously put it in the 1990s, to let's make it legal and let the government pay for it. Um, That means codifying Roe v. Wade in federal law, an effort that was tried and failed in the early 1990s, by the way, eliminating the Hyde Amendment that bans federal abortion funding for women on Medicaid and other government health programs, all the way to making the abortion pill as well as the birth control pill available over the counter. Uh, Three years ago, it was considered a huge shift when Hillary Clinton, you know, got in the Democratic platform to end the Hyde Amendment. This seems so much further than any of that. What has happened here? Is it just sort of the offshoot of Medicare for all? No, I think I think it's separate from that. I mean, I think it's um, I I think the the Democratic sort of electorate has really moved to the left on this issue. And, you know, we saw the um, not only did uh, Democrats take back take back the House in 2018, but elected a lot of people who were very far to the left on this issue in particular. What I think is interesting is the House currently probably has the votes to uh, repeal the Hyde Amendment, knowing it would not ever happen in the Senate. But it's interesting that they haven't chosen to do so. Maybe they thought there that, was a big that, that would was be quite a little the fight. too provocative or something or fuel attack ads from Republicans. Or I, I think I it's know, interesting. He wants to like make that a part exactly, of every single yeah. appropriations. And, bill. you know, if it has no chance in the Senate, I guess, why bother? Although they have passed other things just for messaging purposes. So that was the fight. Yeah, Yeah. they've passed a lot of bills that don't have a chance in the Senate. They just don't want to put the, you know, the swing state Democrats in In a a tough tough place. Yeah, 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 because it's still a very divisive issue. And even people who, you know, support abortion rights don't necessarily think that taxpayer dollars should go Mm -hmm. toward paying for them. So um, so it's interesting that they've, they've, you know, come so far to the left on this. I mean, even, you know, Joe Biden has supported uh, you know, repealing the Hyde Amendment um, and all but a couple of candidates now mm-hmm. say that, you know, there should be uh, virtually no restrictions on third trimester abortions. So um, I think what we've seen is is part of the offshoot of what happened after the Affordable Care Act passed, where um, the question over abortion almost torpedoed um, votes in the House. Now, since then, and you that have... wasn't there wasn't even any funding for it, and it still almost to- torpedoed the exactly. entire bill. And now, because there are so few Democrats in the House who identify as pro-life or anti-abortion, it's, we're unlikely to see that same kind of it's debate like in Dan terms Lipinski of... and almost nobody else. Exactly. Like it's Colin yeah. Peterson. Exactly. And, he, and, and uh, Lipinski's getting primaried. Yeah, so. That's right. He's getting a primary from <laughs> right. someone who supports abortion right. rights. So, right. So after the ACA, you saw organizations like Susan B. Anthony List really push for um, you know candidates who 
supported more limits on abortion and they ended up you know republicans replacing some of those democrats and so forth so Mm -hmm. um really both sides whether it's republican or democrat have become so mired by Mm -hmm. or like the 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 positions on abortions are so entrenched in the party now but they're also so far apart in a in a place in which the country is much more in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's true. Really, it's really notable to me. I thought the New York Times piece was really good because it asked the candidates wh- which one, uh, who, whether they would limit abortions after 24 weeks because that's sort of the viability standard set out in Roe. And so public support for abortion rights falls in the third trimester. It's one thing to say women should have that option, you know, early in a pregnancy. But once the fetus could be viable, survive after birth, people feel less comfortable with that. But only, I think, Tulsi Gabbard and maybe two of the other Democrats said they would actually support restrictions on that. I think part of this is, you know, you have the polling, but then you have the influence of these outside groups. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if those groups have really pushed both sides, the left and the right, to more extreme positions. And you saw this. I mean, there's a real discussion inside Planned Parenthood right now. And you saw some of that come out with the firing of Leanna Wen, um, who reportedly was trying to, I think, move a little bit more to the back to that idea of abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. At least and, in messaging. Yeah. yeah, right. There were some real disagreements between her and the leadership who, you know, the leadership wants to say this should be, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't say this is rare. So that's a real point of disagreement, I think, among the left groups. But, you know, they spend a lot of money on elections. And I think Democrats feel a lot of pressure from Planned Parenthood, from a lot of these other groups, NARAL, et cetera, to take these uh, more left-leaning positions on abortion rights. Along those same lines, the Democratic Attorneys General Association has announced it won't endorse candidates who don't publicly support abortion rights. Now, particularly in southern states like Louisiana, where a very anti-abortion Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards, just got reelected. This doesn't sound like a very good way for Democrats to get themselves elected. So is this sort of the same thing? I I thought this was really interesting. And um, so this almost... This effect. This will affect very few actual candidates right now, um, and the uh, the association um, has argued that, you know, even in these purple states, when they put someone up for that office who supports abortion rights, they win. And they cited recent victories in Nevada, in a few other states as well, where they flipped um, control. And um, so even in these states that have a lot of conservative voters, they said, you know, when we campaign unapologetically on this issue, you know, it's fine. We don't pay a penalty. Um, I think that's really interesting. And we'll see if... um, candidates who are outside that mold go for certain offices in the future. Um, There are a bunch of attorneys general seats up next year. And as we've seen from every healthcare lawsuit ever, these are extremely important positions. And so um, I think that, you know, while it would have also been a huge deal if, you know, the senator house or governor's associations made the same announcement, this is a really big deal as well. All right. Well, uh, also, we were talking about activists. Um, David Daleiden, an anti-abortion activist who surreptitiously taped Planned Parenthood officials, allegedly offering to sell fetal tissue illegally, was found to have broken federal and state laws and ordered to pay Planned Parenthood $2.2 million. Uh, and the same week, uh, an increasingly suspicious Planned Parenthood invited journalists to a happy hour in New York and then asked them to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So are we at the point where nobody trusts anyone on this issue? 
issue, and should anyone trust anyone on this issue? Well, I wouldn't con- I wouldn't put those two things on <laughs> yeah. an equal. No, I wouldn't either. But it, but it, but they they're both sort of two sides of the same. You know, uh, uh, every every everybody is suspect. On on delight, and I think what's interesting is that even you know they're going to appeal and whatever. Um, but uh, in a sense, he's kind of one in terms of influencing people's views and influencing policy. I mean, now we have new restrictions at the federal level on research using fetal tissue that we didn't have before. And Planned Parenthood also made an announcement shortly after his videos came out that they weren't going to involve themselves in donating right. fetal tissue. And we should, at all. we should point out, they were not selling. I mean, no, there no, was the videos Congress- were... Right. Well, ve- and, yeah. yes, but Congress, in a very bipartisan way, allowed the donation of fetal tissue um, from uh, elective abortions, exactly what they were doing, and that the organizations were allowed to recoup their costs. They weren't allowed to sell it for a profit. And right. there's, there's no, been no evidence that Planned Parenthood was doing anything except doing what they were allowed to do. But, I mean, the, the damage has been done in other respects as well. I mean, we saw the man who shot up a Planned Parenthood was yelling and referencing these very videos and and talking points. And so I think that, you know, the outcome in court, even if, you know, you have an official ruling saying these videos are, you know, bunk, uh, I think the narrative is already out there. Well, I didn't know that they said the videos were bunk. I mean, no, it's no, real no. I'm footage. Inside even if they did, it wouldn't change the influence they've had. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that I think in Delayden's mind, probably the point he wanted to make was, I mean, he was sort of trying to, like, make this argument that Planned Parenthood was, like, profiting off of this stuff, which he didn't seem to have a lot of evidence for that. But I think what, in his mind... He was sort of going for the shock value as well, right? And, like, this footage showed sort of, like, footage of, like, fetal matter and, you know, was sort of graphic. And so I agree with you, with you that, like, I think the impact that he was trying to make probably had its effect. And people were talking about it a and lot. I mean, it was a people, big deal when they yes, came out. Yes, and people talking in less than respectful terms. Um, about some of these issues, uh, that was I think that right. was they a... seem they they came across as crass mm-hmm. in these conversations, and so I think. Um, but yeah, this this has taken a really long time to kind of wind through the courts. I think it was what four years ago that he first released the videos. It was like, yeah, so... I think at least it was it was it was quite a while back. Yeah, but I I was interested to see all the Republicans who'd voted for. Exactly what Planned Parenthood was doing. Um, suddenly, you know, recoil. You know, it, it, and again, it's sort of what we've been talking about. It's like the two sides are retreating further and further away from each other. Um, you know, Republicans are terrified to to say that um, we said that we could do this for research. <laughs> yeah, I, I also think on the Planned Parenthood story, um, you mentioned Julie about um, requiring journalists to sign these non disclosure agreements. I guess maybe this is just cynical, but I see the responsibility on the journalists to to not agree to these kinds of terms because, I mean, I just know from my perspective, I'm constantly encountering people who ask for really shady things like, you know, can I review the story before it's published? Or, you know, even to the (laughs) spokespeople on the Hill will sometimes try to say no comment on this issue, but off the record. So Yes, I love the off the record, we have no comment. Right. (laughs) As though somehow you you can be restricted, banned from saying that the office didn't comment. You know, so I feel like organizations play these kinds of games all the time, and it's disappointing for sure to see Planned Parenthood doing this. But I would be disappoint, equally disappointed in a journalist that would like go along with this. And we idea, should say that, that Planned Parenthood said that at least for it the happy hour, yeah. right, it was a mistake. Yeah, they they've, 
but yeah. but there ha- they have asked for for non disclosures at other events, which is problematic for mm-hmm. journalists, obviously. But Just... I completely agree that um, journalists should not default to agreeing to whatever conditions sources lay out, and should you know push for maximum transparency whenever appropriate it's gotten really hard i feel like everyone wants to talk off the record and tell you what is going on so that they can influence the story Mm -hmm. without um you know actually having exactly having their names attached to it so i do think that you know it is um, something that we continue to push back on. Yeah, you know? right. Planned Parenthood is not alone in this <laughs> in this realm. That at is all. true. It also would put journalists in. A, I'm just thinking, like, if you went to this happy hour, I feel like it would put you in a really difficult position as a journalist because there's a lot of gray area. Then, like, does that mean if you hear something in a conversation with somebody who works at Planned Parenthood or a conversation with somebody who doesn't work at Planned Parenthood, but it just happens to right. be at this event, can you like never use that? Like, what does that even can mean? Can you follow that? up and try to <laughs> confirm it another way? Yeah, there, right. are, ways, there are ways to go around it that but, I've certainly taken advantage of in the past, you yes, know, like I, where I, you can I think that, ask I mean, someone who was there to tell my, you. My and, point in raising it, though, was that this is everybody has become now so suspicious of everybody else. Mm-hmm. But but you guys are right that they're they're not the only ones who are doing this. That is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Alice, why don't you go first this week? Sure. Well, this is my favorite kind of story because it is a story about the power of journalism. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I um, chose uh, the New York Times story uh, on um, a university in Idaho, um, Brigham Young University. This is a piece by Sarah Cliff, um, but the story was originally broken by local journalists um, from uh, the radio and local newspapers in Idaho. And it is about the university telling all of their students that they have to have health insurance to remain enrolled and Medicaid does not count. And this comes right as the state is about to expand Medicaid. Um, so more college students would be eligible. A lot more low-income college students. And so um, Sarah interviewed these uh, low-income students. Some of them are parents um, who were basically uh, given the choice of paying thousands of dollars for the university's plan, which, by the way, doesn't cover maternity care or contraception or mental health or a lot of things. Um, So paying thousands a year uh, for that or dropping out of school um, when originally they were going to enroll in Medicaid. And so because I assume because of all the attention that um, these uh, reporters have uh, brought to the issue, the university just last night, I believe, reversed its position and said they will allow students to enroll in Medicaid. So those students can enroll in Medicaid and stay uh, in the school. So. Yes, this was this was quite a story. And before people start writing, this is the the Idaho campus of BYU. Yes, so. not the Utah campus. Right, not the not the, the main campus in Provo. Uh, Kimberly. Uh, yes, I picked a piece from the Philadelphia Inquirer called He Didn't Know He Had a Pre-Existing Condition Until His Insurer Rejected His $35,000 Hospital Bill. This is by Sarah Gantz, who's done a really good job um, finding patients who have um, gone through what we talked about earlier in this podcast, which is um, selecting health insurance plans that don't have all the same rules on pre-existing conditions and uh, premium prices and um, all those different things that the Affordable Care Act offers. And, um, you know, how that can put them in a uh, difficult uh, position financially. Um, And in this case, um, 
he didn't know that he had these conditions, but uh, the health insurer went back and said, well, you should have known, et cetera. Um, so it just it does a really good job laying out too, um, you know, what can qualify as a pre-existing condition. It's a lot of things that people might not necessarily realize. And um, yeah, he, I showing... mean, it's important. He'd never been diagnosed with any of these. Exactly. Things. So it's not as though when he applied, he could, you know, even answer some of those questions. Um, but it was still considered a pre-existing condition. So um encourage you all to check it out. Yes, and this is this is Sarah's second extra credit in three weeks. So yeah. she's, she's doing a bang-up job there in yeah. Philadelphia. Uh, Paige. Yeah, well, my story is by Phil Galowitz with Kaiser Health News and has what I mentioned earlier is a very misleading headline that was written by Washington Post writers. Apparently it says why it's called Why Our Free Flu Shots Actually Cost Us Down the Road. What I thought was really interesting about this piece is Phil took a really common and cheap basic medical procedure, getting your flu shot, and sort of used that to illustrate the huge dis- disparity in prices that insurers pay to providers. So he looked at, you know, like I think the, the lowest point was Medicaid in some state pays like $15 for a flu shot, but then there's a um, Cigna plan that pays a hospital in Sacramento like $85 for a flu shot. And that's just a really good illustration of how these negotiated prices are very separate from the actual value of the medical service being provided a lot of times are based on, you know, who are the providers in the area and how much leverage do they have and how much leverage does the insurer have. And of course, from the consumer's point of view, they're free. That's kind yeah. of the point. I mean, right. no, you know, if you have insurance, you have insurance. it's yeah. covered. You have no idea how much gets Not paid. Not a clue. Yeah. I, I mean, I got the flu shot a couple weeks ago and I they just gave it to me and I'm expecting I'll probably get something from my insurer, but I have no idea how much they're going to pay my provider for it. So I just thought it was a really, really, um, a really well done story. Um, and yeah, just a really good illustration of how crazy and ridiculous our healthcare system is in a lot I of ways. I think I got a statement for mine later in the mail and it said they were charged like 30 something, my my insurer. So. Yes, well, my, my flu shot, my $40 flu shot was uh, one of the, the data points in Phil's story. Because oh. so, he said that he did a quick survey to go find the EOB on your flu shot. Tell me how much they pay for it. should have quoted you too, Julie. Yes, no, it was fine. <laughs> and I'm going to log in and Also, if up. anyone hasn't gotten their flu shot, please go get your flu yes, shot. Yes, please go get your flu shot. It's, we're already starting to see flu. Um, all right. Well, my story is uh, by Todd Bookman from New Hampshire Public Radio. It's called Regulators Allege Christian-Based Healthcare Provider Broke State and Federal Rules. It's about some fly-by-night Christian sharing ministries. And that's not saying that Christian sharing ministries themselves are fly-by-night, but this one certainly seemed to be fly-by-night. Um, these sharing ministries are already barely regulated because they're not really insurance. And now they're signing people up pretending to be insurance and then refusing to pay claims. Uh, In the case of this story, a guy had a $200,000 bill for back surgery that ended up not getting covered. Now, the sharing ministries, which are groups of like-minded people who agree to pay each other's major medical bills, were specifically exempted in the Affordable Care Act, so they don't have to cover a comprehensive set of benefits. Um, And they're cheaper because they don't cover everything. But that has given rise to some of these less-than-scrupulous operators uh, to go out and lure in unsuspecting buyers looking for cheap coverage. I said this a few weeks ago with the last story of this sort that that I recommended, but it bears repeating. Unless you're eligible for Medicaid or a government subsidy, cheaper coverage is likely to be coverage that's not complete or, like in this case, pretty actively fraudulent. So be careful out there. 
Okay, that is our show for this week. I hope everyone has a very happy holiday. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review, too. That helps other people find us. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehellfall, one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At Leonard KL. At Alice Holstein. At PW underscore Cunningham. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.